Hi, I'm Jeff Miller. I'm Anthony Navarro, and welcome to Talk Out Loud, where we share the LGBTQIA narrative one story at a time. On this episode of Talk Out Loud, we're here with Anjali Remy. Anjali was born in Hyderabad, India, and as a young person, realized that she was different from the other children around her. Having to flee from her homeland to begin to understand who she was, she found herself in the United States. For the first time in her life, instead of facing harassment over her gender identity, she faced racism, something she had never experienced. After obtaining her degree and discovering how to navigate in this new world and keeping to herself, she thrived, only to find that hiding her transgender experience from the world did not feed her soul. She needed to come out to the world, and thus Pariyavar was born. Let's hear Anjali's story. Well, what a wonderful time we get to have today. Anthony and I are so excited to have Anjali here with us for a very special conversation and uh, just a beautiful story. Um, And we had the honor of, we just had the, actually the serendipity of being in a clubhouse room with you a while ago and were just lingering on every word you had to say and so interested in your story and yet the way you also carried yourself and the way you talk to other people in the room and we are just so grateful for being able to introduce you to some of our listeners and also for us to get to know you better and um, so thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely. My pleasure and honor, um, Jeff and Anthony. Thank you for, you know, bringing me onto this platform. Um, just goes to confirm that the world is a small place and Clubhouse is becoming that vessel where we all connect on. And to this morning, to give everyone, uh, just uh, we're, we're in Los Angeles and you're, you're currently in San Francisco, but uh, your journey didn't begin in San Francisco. Um, you were born in, is it Hyderabad? That's correct. Hyderabad, <laughs> India. Sorry, I always I always second guess my 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 uh, language skills. Can you tell us a little bit about about the the city you're, you're from and what that was like? Absolutely. I was born in the city of Hyderabad, which is very unique in its sense, setting. So it already makes me diverse. Before we go to my trans or any other identity, because it's one, it's the only other city besides another uh, Lucknow um, that is very much um, very secular. Uh, India is a very secular place, uh, but eighteen only 18% of India's population is minority religion, with primarily being Islam. But Hyderabad has 40 to 45% Islam, the Muslim population. Mm-hmm. So by virtue of that, the city in itself is a beautiful mosaic of all sorts of traditions and cultures. And I was born in a lower middle class family. I was the youngest child. And, you know, uh, food was difficult. And, you know, family set, set conditions were not the most favorable. Uh, both my parents worked, um, but still it was really hard to make ends meet. And I think the journey would have been Far more difficult as I look back now, if I weren't from where my, the city or where I came from as a family and, you know, the roots were very strong. You know, it's interesting to me that you talk about food being difficult. You use the word difficult, I believe was what you just said. And, and I think just to like, to not just brush over that, just to stop, pause for a second, like, like the things I take for granted, food, shelter and stuff like that, that actually elevates like 
my, my thinking, my day to day, like how I'm able to get through life. Where, where did, where did you go from there? I mean, was it that where you spent the most of your childhood or? I spent half of my life at this point of time, uh, in, in, <laughs> India and mostly Hyderabad, 90% of it. And the rest has been in North America and Canada and in the US. And I think, yeah, food was difficult. Um, and just mm-hmm. to expand on that, you know, there's different levels and layers of poverty. And we have to recognize that in the so-called developing countries, which in my purview, India is not a developing country. Um, when you look at how forward it is when it comes to racism and religious inclusion and all that. But, you know, poverty can look like something that is very um, obvious and uh, explicit and is optics, you know, of not having a shelter, being in a hut, of having to beg for food on the streets. And there's that another kind of poverty where in the South Asian or Indian diaspora, it's about pride being the one that's going to feed you, mm. the pride and the honor. So there's mm. such a difference in eating air versus eating real food. So that's mm. where I think my dynamic was, where my, my parents were educated, but they were definitely victims of a lot of bad addictions. And the food scarcity I'm talking about was to be able to have that healthy meal, you know, to like to just give you the the situation, we could have one egg per week per person. That's Mm. how difficult it was. You know, as you're talking about, you know, sort of this pride that uh, families have, that people have. So I, I'm Italian, 100%. And my grandparents on my mom's side, they immigrated here from Italy. And their both of their parents came here as immigrants. And I know that I unfortunately did not get to meet them. They passed away before uh, I was born. But I know from, you know, stories, their work ethic was so strong that, you know, like all they wanted to do, they had to work, both of them, in order to, you know, put food on the table. My grandfather had 11 brothers and sisters, and it was this mom and dad that had to, you know, scrape. But there was this pride that they had that on Sundays, they would make this big pasta dinner, which is very inexpensive, but would stretch, you know, very far and be able to feed all of the kids and then, you know, their brothers and sisters and those kids would come. And it was like this, this way of being able to bring everyone together. You know, that tradition was sort of passed down to me. I, you know, I grew up going to my aunt's house on Sundays for this gathering. And there is, even though, you know, times may be tough or things aren't good, there's something when you are able to bring that family unit together, there's something like almost it's almost magical where it like recharges you and it recharges your spirit and it allows you to be able to go out into the world, you know, on Monday, whether it's, you know, you're going to school or going to work or whatever. And it just sort of fills you up in a, in a very special and different way. It's really, it's really hard to, I think, explain unless you've gone through it or have been a part of that, but there's just something it's centered around a meal with, which it's really not even about the food. The food is almost the excuse to get everybody together. It's really about the people coming together and that love that's within the room. It's very special. Absolutely. I totally relate to that. You know, when 
growing up, it, that was the fabric of what brought us together to sit around and eat on the ground, no dining table and all the fancy placemats and everything. And just be able to share that at that moment. And, you know, trans and all those identities obviously were not discussed at the dinner table, but what was discussed <laughs> was, you know, the movie we watch or we went together for once a month that we could afford to, or, you know, the, just the bonding that happened, you know, yeah. despite all the limitations and despite all the desperations was just something priceless that really brought about the understanding of what family meant. You know, again, um, just like yours, my dad came from one of 17 siblings and mm. um, my mom came from one of seven siblings and I had 28 cousins on my dad's side and I have 12 cousins on my mom's side and the city we lived in Hyderabad. And here's the other diversity, right? My dad's not from where my mom's is. And typically folks get married within the same kind of regions or castes and cultures. But my dad actually came from West Bengal area. So it's like kind of further mm. out. So most people look at my last name and they go, where are you from? Because they, they don't think it's not very Indian sounding. It's not the Sings and the Patels and such. And so there's this whole 23andMe ancestry thing I want to do someday. Um, but there isn't <laughs> the data on the South Asian folks yet. Um, but, you know, we had, I grew up, so my mom's family was pretty close to around us in Hyderabad. And, you know, the, 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 the way we all used to be able to like uh, enjoy what my grandmother made, but, you know, based on who she loved the most, they would get the the head of the fish uh, in the fish curry um, ah. and who she didn't <laughs> like. Uh, they are mostly women. Uh, women are women's enemies. They would get the tail uh, or something like that. So it kind of also played these nuances and the dynamics at the dining table. And, but, you know, it really bonded uh, us. And, you know, that's what the yeah. beauty is amongst rich people and the really poor people, right? You enjoy with the means of what you have. Whereas in yeah. middle class, I think there is no means and the definitions mm -hmm. relatively vary. And so it comes down to people. You mentioned about um, not talking about, you know, trans uh, at these at these family functions and stuff. Was there a moment in your life where you were like you had like maybe throughout the week or I don't know if it was an educational experience over a year's time where you realized that you were different and that you would have to hold that back from parts of the conversation and start maybe compartmentalizing part of who you were? At these family functions? Absolutely. Um, I think I was a very early woke person, if I may say so. So <laughs> I realized who I was around 11 because I was looking at all my female cousins and um, I was like, I'm so much more prettier than you is what I would tell them. <laughs> and they would be like, well, you're a boy, you can be pretty. And I was like, no, no, I'm just a boy today, but tomorrow I will not be. Because I really did not know the words trans. I didn't know anything. And uh, so I very innocently assumed that I would wake up one day when I hit puberty and I would transition, I would become a girl. And I used to have this conversation with my mom's younger sister, who was a lot more, um, I guess, uh, 
progressive uh, because she was actually, you know, the one to leave her husband and to find mm-hmm. a job like and take care of her kids. And she said something to the nature of, you know, that doesn't really happen unless you go to see a doctor. And I didn't really, I mean, 11 year old, right? Like I, I didn't catch on to that. But, you know, I, I don't know if I would say compartmentalizing as much as not talking about it. It existed. But from the age of 11 until I left India, and maybe even beyond that, I left India when I was 19 and a half, 20. It was there, you know, it existed mm-hmm. in behind doors. I existed in communities of folks similar to my journey. Uh, but on the outside, you would see this individual who was male presenting, uh, was, uh, you know, excelling in academics and drama and elocution. And I won the President's Award for Bravery uh, from the President of mm-hmm. India when I was 14. Wow. And, you know, I was at the highest of my highest peaks and I was in newspapers and TV and, you know, there was a, there was a movie offer I got, you know, and all that. And that really made me scared because that was not my full reality. Can you speak to that a little bit more when you mean that that wasn't your full reality? Absolutely. The strength and the courage I had and exuded every time, even today or back then, was because of my realization and my true attestation of who I was from inside out and outside in. So I didn't have any of these layers of me trying to discover myself. Obviously, I didn't know the terms. I didn't know the ways to navigate, but I understood who I was. I realized that Mm. maybe different is not the word, but I am who I am. You know, my mom had a an older uh, child before me who is my older brother and, you know, uh, very different from me. The way we existed was very different. The way my parents kind of um, interacted with us was also very different. Um, And so with that said, you know, there is this part of any person that's marginalized that I always say that you're, we are marginalized based on whatever intersectionality we are, but then there's other aspects that are very common with everybody else. So those common areas where I was, was where I was associating with everybody that was in academics, in school, in college, in my family. But in reality, I was not presenting myself as who I was, mm-hmm. right? And I don't think there would have been an understanding that I'm that same amalgamated soul of all those things. But that one particular different identity of mine would be parsed out and that would completely overshadow any of my competencies, accomplishments or my existence. So it was a way to exist and something very bad happened to me when I was 14, when I at the peak of my career life or whatever I was on cloud nine. And that really changed the, that brought a lot out into the open, if I may say. So, you know, as you're, you know, talking through this part of your journey and, you know, you're listing like these amazing accomplishments that you've had at like a very young age. The one thing that, and, and completely understanding, you know, I don't want to say is justifying maybe the right word of like not you know, being able to talk about who you are freely. There's a lot of ways to relate to it in the sense of not being able to be fully who you are, not to be able to be at that 100% mark of uh, who you are as a person. 
Um, like imagine if you could have been at a hundred percent doing what you were doing it like you would have just been able to keep excelling and keep going you know as yourself but uh, you know there's that part of you when you're not able to to fully express who you are you, there's so much energy and effort that's taken into account that you're like hiding a piece of you or heart like hi- hiding who you really are to the to the world and that energy instead of hiding it could have been put into you know, other interests that you had, you know, to do other things. So, you know, for all of us, it's just sort of a reminder is like, you know, you have to embrace who you really are. And and it's not just, I think it's not just about our identity. I, I think about just like, what are your gifts? What do you love doing? What are your passions? What are those things? And instead of, you know, not embracing them, if you choose to embrace those things that you're really good at or the things that you love, just think of the amazing things that could happen in your own life. You did say that something um, very bad happened to you around 14, 15. And we know that there was some trauma that came from uh, from that and it sort of changed everything. Can you give us a little sense of what were some of the things that then helped you uh, sort of as you got knocked off your pedestal or you, you know your road got blocked? Can you can you walk us through some of the the pillars of hope that you had in your life that were able to bring you to the next level? Absolutely. Uh, I have never been asked that question uh, or around that situation in a more positive light. So thank you for asking that. My biggest rock around all of that and all my life and touch with even today is my mother. She realized at a very early age that I was very much like her in every aspect. I look like her. I behave like her, except for she always said, God just didn't give you the right parts. Um, And Mm -hmm. To me, when everything transpired, it was just, I guess it just catapulted so quickly into uh, so many things. The dominant effect was so many people, so many was the, the word, the operative word there. It didn't just affect me. We had to leave our home overnight and we had to move 50 kilometers away. We had to change the landline phone number. We had to change my brother's college. We had to change my school. Everything had to be started all over. So there was a humongous amount of guilt that I carried, even though Mm. I was the victim and all of that. And I think that in a way, it doesn't make it justified, made me forget the trauma, the physical and the mental trauma I went through from that particular assault. But I was more focused on, from that guilt came that I had to prove myself back to my family. And so I Mm. think one of the things that really helped me build is a plan, a plan Mm. of exit from India. And Mm. to get to that plan, what is the runway? What, I can't mm. just get on a ship. I could have gotten on a ship in the hull of a ship and gotten away from India and ended up somewhere, wherever. Um, or I could have d- done something and really kind of still lived in disguise and gotten away through, you know, to come through the system of what everybody, the great majority does. So it did ha- push me to have a plan. And then I would say it also brought out a few allies who Mm. I would not say had the courage to embrace me openly 
in public, but they were my support in a in a unsaid, um, in an anonymous way. In some cases, I didn't even know who these people were, and then you know, somewhere through all of that, I also found found my first love who had come to know about the situation and I never met him before and he was in my new school and um, so we you know he, he was a big big part of my rebuilding and I think in a in a way when we moved away it also gave my dad uh, a reason to re- reckon with his own indulgence uh, with alcohol and his mental mm-hmm. challenges and it gave me some, gave him something else new to worry about and to step up to. Well, and you know, one of the things as you're saying this, like thinking, like you have to leave. You know, I think for you know people listening, I speak that family language, right? Like growing up in the big family, and you know, having this like real tight, like cousins are like siblings to me. And I, you know, one of the things as you're saying this that you, you know, it's not just an easy. It's not just like you're going to leave and, uh, you know, you're leaving your home and you're going to go somewhere else. You're also like, you're not just leaving your home, you're leaving your family, you're leaving your life, you're leaving everything that you know. And I know like even for me, it's, it's you know, I moved from Chicago to LA and that that it's not that far away. It's a close plane ride. And that's still difficult to, you know, not be able to be close with family. So, but in, you know, some sense that really is, it's what you had to do in order to be able to be who you are to to thrive as the person that you are yeah. today. So I your bravery and courage is just beyond bounds and you know I I really feel that when you when you're just walking us through that that that's really where it's just really a uh, it it just is a testament to who you are as a person. Yeah. And and I'm just I'm picture I love the analogy you used as as a runway. How you had needed a runway. Like that I've never heard anyone use it in a life term like that. And and I, I can think about how that can be something that I'm probably going to borrow now. <laughs> and, and, and just so those of us who are, who, those who are listening, what did gearing up the runway look like for you? What was, what was the plan? Well, um, the runway looked like being able to secure a semi-permanent or home somewhere else outside uh, of India. The runway looked like building up my... Um, my skill set and qualification, because that's what every other Indian person did, right? Got on a plane to go to UK, Australia, America, in some cases, Canada or New Zealand. And I was going to get into the rat race. And it didn't matter if a whole bunch of men were going to pinch my bottom in that rat race, uh, literally and figuratively. And also, you know, undergo further I don't want to use the word assault, but further discrimination or, you know, something on those lines. But the runway also looked like saving money. Every Mm. single rupee, you know, mattered. Mm. And the runway also meant that I built my network of resources. And the runway also pushed me to become an adult very quickly. So by 16, I had um, gotten into university because we get into university early 
And I didn't go into doing engineering, which is what all men are expected to do or boys are expected to do. And all the girls are expected to go into what's called home sciences or becoming a medical assistant. Or if you are a girl who's got a little bit more freedom at home and you're a bit more intelligent, your parents will spend the money to help you get become a doctor. In my case, mm. I didn't do any of those. I actually went on to become a, a hospitality professional. I went into the business of hotel management, which had everything from housekeeping, accommodations to culinary arts to, or, you know, food and beverage, uh, wine, sommelier and all that. So it was a very unique field. And I picked that because nobody would draw comparative to me. It would, it would kind of protect me. Nobody is really aware of this world. And it's, you know, the institution that I attended in my city was relatively less, less known. It's been there for about 20 years or so run by this, not the state, but actually by the federal government or the central government, as it's called. And I also worked, started selling snacks on the side of the street. Um, and I started learning French past every single layer, uh, level of French. And I started selling these snacks. So my, my mom would come home from school at 3.30. I would be home by 4. And we would mix the batter, fry these things, and we would put them all in these, you know, they're called malitu, like these things that you carry, these steel things. And, you know, we would put them all in there, uh, wrap newspaper, and we would get on this on the side of the street. And people just were baffled because here you are again, middle class family, Right. We are not supposed to do those kind of things. We are not begging on the streets. So there's this hypocrisy where, you know, my dad's like, I'm not supporting you in any way possible. He didn't pay a single penny of my school after that incident. He, I wouldn't say he disowned me and he threw me out, but he did not take any responsibility for myself because he was like, you've done enough damage. I got to build my own self and I got to protect my family. You can do whatever you want, you know, sort of a thing. And so, yeah, there was a lot of things that happened very quickly. And yeah, I had to uh, realize that in order for me to survive, like to live, mm. there was many things I needed to do right off the bat. And I have done, I mean, we want, we can talk about it, but I have done many things in those years that will get me or the person who did those into the jail. <laughs> well, we don't have to talk about those things. No, we don't want anybody <laughs> don't want going to jail. We don't yeah. want anybody going to jail. But, yeah. you know, definitely like all I kept thinking when you were saying this, entrepreneur in the making. Like, you know, at 16, you're making food on the street, doing your thing and, you know, preparing yourself, uh, you know, for what was to come in the future. So we know eventually you, I guess the runway is clear for takeoff and uh, you make your way to the States. And uh, you found yourself, uh, you came to be able to do your MBA um, here. And um, can do you want to walk us through or tell us maybe just a little bit about what your experience was coming, uh, you know, from India to America? Absolutely. So I got on a plane on August 11th, 2001, a month exactly before 9-11. And I was, again, in the rat race, right? And that was one of the years that the U.S. had granted student visas without much scrutiny. So I was, um, along with four other uh, guys, we came to this university that was accepting students left, right, center in Ohio. 
and keep keep in mind that my brother had already been living in the US for about six years by then. And he was very, very reticent and against me mo- coming to the US because to him, it was like, he's going to go full scale because this is what America does to people. And it's going to be problematic for me to live here. It's about my prestige and my pride. So mm. he didn't know that I came. He didn't know I got on a plane. My dad was like, I'm not supporting you. So the only money I had was for a plane ticket, which was 63,000 rupees. And I think that equates to about $800. And I had first quarter, not first, um, first semester even, fees. That's all I had. And so I came and I think when I landed, uh, I was in Detroit, Michigan, and I was just like I had achieved freedom. But, you know, who Mm -hmm. knew that the journey from there on would be something else? I went into the university, which we I realized on day two was blacklisted. It had no accreditation. I had to stay in a home. Again, talk about survival, right? 13 students, mostly men, in a two-bedroom apartment. Wow. And I stayed there for four weeks, and there was a lot of abuse, sexual abuse. And because I was different, and it doesn't take somebody, even if I didn't transition, to figure that out. And I'm also vocal mm-hmm. to after a certain point, right? So, yeah, it happened. And then I was like, I'm not going back to India. And my brother came to find out because my mom told him and he was like, I'm putting him back on the next plane. And I said, no. And so I took my GMAT again and got a better score. And I applied for a whole bunch of universities. But keep keep in mind that I got into some of the best universities, but I didn't have a penny to my name. Right. So I needed a school that was going to actually support me in my studies and I would show up with nothing to pay them as fees. And that was mm. Boise State, which actually gave me a TA, which is a teaching assistant, which doesn't happen from the very first semester that you join a university. And it also gave me a full waiver on my fees. Mm. Now, why I did why why they did that, I have no idea. But later on, I come to find out that they really wanted to build a. They had a school, a college of culinary arts and hospitality management. So you know, uh, this degree that was unknown and shunned upon that I did in India was what probably came handy. When I moved mm. to Boise, I thought. I was home, I was settled, and Boise back then was the home of where a lot of Eastern European and Afghani refugees were getting placed by the U.S. government. Mm -hmm. And this is, I'm talking 2001, right? So right after 9-11. So there's a whole bunch of different dynamics. Forget trans. Just the existence of being a brown person in a state like Idaho, which is still very red, in a city like Boise was a totally different level of, you know, vulnerability. And but I thought that was America. That was what I needed to um, now get used to. I never heard the word racism in India. I never heard the word that I was a a person of color. Like, you know, I never heard all these things, you know. So it was a lot of vocabulary that I had to build. But I also had to prove myself in school very quickly. And here in Boise, Mm -hmm. of course, cost of living was better. 
but that doesn't mean that I was getting paid this paid any higher, right? It's the equivalent of cost of living. So my TA would pay me about $1,200 per month. And I would send 400 of that back home to my parents because by this time my dad had stopped working and they didn't have anywhere mm-hmm. to go. And my brother was in madly in love with this woman. So he didn't have any money to send home after all the, you know, the shoppings or whatever you want to call it. Um, and so food was, again, difficult, but at least now it was, you know, a whole bag of burritos for four ninety nine, and that was breakfast <laughs> every single morning. And I lived in a bigger home with two other guys from Nepal, and that's when I realized that we are actually Indians are not the only people who look like me. There's Nepalese, there's Pakistani, there's a lot of other people. Mm. And I think there was a whole different level of learning. I had the fact that I'm actually a brown person and I'm not actually in India amongst all other people who look like me, but I'm actually in a country where the color of your skin really defines you in so many different levels. So, um, yeah, that was my initial journey of being here, but there was a huge level of relief that I was no longer going to be subject subject to the discrimination and my life would be in danger. But that was before I realized all the other nuances of being in America and trying to be a trans woman of trans person of color or anything other than the heterosexual, heteronormative cis white person in America. But that story is to follow. <laughs> yeah. That's that's really helpful. And I, I really like how you walked this through the experiencing that you didn't experience racism in India. Yeah, there was there was poverty, but you didn't experience racism. And I mean and it seems so it seems so simple now that you just said it, but I just I didn't I haven't had that experience. So thank you for allowing us to, to experience that with you through, through your story. Here in 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 Boise, is this where you started you used the word earlier about presenting as, as female in, in, inside you were, but you weren't necessarily externally presenting that way. Was this where you started feeling safe that you could present yourself that way? And, and, and where, how did you, how did that first happen? Yes. Um, it did feel safer to do so because I didn't know any better. So you only know that the gra- green is grass. The grass is greener on the other side, right? So now this is a better place than India because I got nobody to judge me. They don't know my history from before. So I'm going to present this way. So when finished school finished, every Friday to Monday, I would exist as myself. People only knew me as who I was. This is also very common with most folks who are on the gender journey where, you know, they can be themselves in all facets of life. So when it's safe, they live part-time, as it's called. And Mm. I happened to chance upon the immigrant populations that I was talking about. So I had a very close friend who used to take me to his home, and I really thought he loved me or he was in love with me or something to that nature, but found out that it was just just courtesy and hospitality. But one of his sisters really became close to me, and we started doing a lot of makeup together. And, you know, if her dad would have ever found out that I was in her room, leave alone the, you know, I'm still considered a guy, right? He would chop me to death because they were a very, very, very strict Muslim family. And I also made friends with uh, folks from Mexico, Sri Lanka. And these folks were, what if I may say, were very gender expansive. 
And so one of my mm-hmm. first experiences was, you know, I was the university relations event manager and I was essentially responsible for all the scheduling and making sure the campus, which is about 16,000 students, the student union and all of that was mad. So people knew who I was. But people also were like, you know, why does he have nail polish that's kind of half gone? Because I didn't even have a weight. Like, I didn't even know there was something called like a nail polish remover. (laughs) I would do nail polish on the weekends and I'd be like sitting here and like taking it out. (laughs) And so people had their own doubts about me. But then I think it was this one event where they needed performers for an event at a penitentiary. And it was a benefit event for the incarcerated. And it was the first time that I actually, I had brought, in, uh, I had borrowed a sari from one of my housemates. And we lived in like a group, what is it called? G- graduate housing that had like, indiv- like a dormitory, but just I- its own unit. And one of the Indian gals um, and I kind of bonded and she she gave me her sari. I never told her it was for me. And she gave me her sari and um, I borrowed a wig from one of my other friends and my friend did my makeup. And here I was in the penitentiary on a Friday night at, I think, 7 p.m. performing. And I don't think half of the crowd even recognized who I was. What did that feel like? It was utopia. It was this different level of freedom that I was like, I'm going to take my sari and hold it up and I can start flying. It was a relief, but there was also this worry that, you know, like when you really love the pint of Ben and Jerry's ice cream and you're worried that it's going to be over soon, it was also that, that, you know, once Mm -hmm. this is over, this stage performance, the performative action is done and I have to go back to the other full-time performative action that I do on a daily basis. Mm. Wow. So that really, wow. you know, God, like once you taste success, it's hard to go back to not having it, right? <laughs> uh, so it was definitely that. And I think that's what pushed me to keep actually doing this more and more. So anytime there was any opportunity to perform, I would sneak into these roles and I would say, I couldn't find anybody female. I couldn't find anybody. And um, that was my way of being myself. And, um, mm. you know, it, the story gets more complex and, you know, comes with its own level of adversities, if I may say, because rec- recognize that, you know, when I got to that penitentiary event and such, I started gathering and mustering the courage that I could actually walk as myself in on the street, of course, in the night to begin with, in downtown Boise, and nobody would recognize me. But you have to realize mm-hmm. that when I was walking on the street, per passerby might not be look at might not look at me and go, "Oh, that's a trans person," or "That's a man in a dress," because they're not listening to my voice, and I was pretty passable. But they actually were going to look at me as, oh, there is a brown person wearing her ethnic clothes and walking around. So there came this Mm. different level of attention that I didn't need. And that Mm. made me a victim of hate crime. And it was something else I had to watch out because I never heard of something like a hate crime in India, right? This was a whole different level of learning. 
and ve- learning in a very hard way. And yeah. so my recovery was about three months in the hospital. And so like life again went upside down. And again, I started questioning, you know, here I tried in India, here I tried in the US, and it's just difficult to live as myself. Until I got to the point where I realized that whatever happened to me anywhere had little to do with me and it had to do with the ignorance and the, mm. and the aspect of inhumanity in the person across from me who meted that out to me. I just want to pause for a second. That's huge because some people spend their whole lives not figuring that out. And the fact that you were able to figure that out is so important, I think. Because if you hadn't, all the wonderful things that you have been able to do may have not have been able to manifest themselves. I think it's important um, for us to acknowledge that just, just for this moment right now. We're at a point now where it's like you, you've done so much and, and we have we want to make sure that we get to, uh, to, to celebrating some of the work you've done. And we could talk about a lot more stories. I, I know that you there for a while you had to go to Canada. Is there anything from that part, that part of your story that's important that we, we should not neglect today? Um, if not, we can move forward. Just want to make sure that we, we, do, we do the right thing here. Absolutely. Yeah, I kind of hovered there for a bit, but I'll fast forward to say that you know, my first discovery of intersectionality was coming to San Francisco Bay Area on a Greyhound overnight from Boise and seeing that people like me existed, brown people who were trans. And so quickly I moved to the Bay Area and here's where you have false false confirmations that now you're in a safe place. And um, I quickly started accessing hormones and started transitioning and started showing up as myself with full nail polish um, at my work. (laughs) And very quickly, I was kind of, you know, in a very circumvented way, moved out of my employment position because my boss was extremely homophobic and transphobic. He would call Mm. me a fruit in front of my own team. Like I was not anybody. I was a manager. When was this? It, uh, like mid 2000s or so? 2004, or early 2000s? Early 2000s, 2004, 2005. Just yeah. on the cusp when gender identity was becoming le- included or protected in the laws in California. I think it happened at the end of 2005, yeah. I think that law. Anyways, I had to leave the country. Going back to India was not an option. So I moved to Canada with nothing. And I didn't even have a winter jacket. I moved there like in February or March. And I built myself bottom up. But here's what I learned Mm. about having lived in the US and now going to Canada is that I don't need to tell the whole world my story every single time, verbally, or even by the way I, I present myself. So I stopped my transition. I stopped my presenting myself as myself. I parked it and I put it in the back burner. I said, you know what? I cannot be moving around like this. I came to the U.S. to be myself and now I have to leave. the. I was devastated. And mm-hmm. I begged so many people. I slept with so many people. I can't even begin to tell you so I could remain in this country. So when I moved to Canada, the strategy was totally different. See, for me, it's always about strategy and planning. It's never like, let's get through this day today. So in Canada, it was all about building myself up, finding a job, um, making a lot of money, savings in the bank account, buying my home. And through all of this, people knew who I was, but it was never on the forefront. 
Uh, I had mm. a huge following in Toronto. Um, I had a big, huge circle of friends. I had folks coming over to celebrate Pride at my home. I would help people come stay with me. Even though I had not started my transition, I would help other folks who were homeless, who were thrown out, who were um, captured and held at home. And so I became this person, I think from then, those times were the early times of when I started becoming more of a provider to my community. But eventually I got to a point where I had to step away from all of it. So my transition was literally nine months. And when I say transition, it was from different people, different transitions, different journeys. So mine was, you know, going from living part-time to going full-time, keeping my job, changing all my legal documents, even though my gender market didn't change until much later, and moving away from anything LGBT. So from about mm. 2009 to 2016, you will not see any record of me anywhere as a trans person in the LGBT community. I went into complete trans erasure. My parents came around because they saw this person mm -hmm. who they thought was a incivil mm -hmm. and a failure. And now this person's got the checkboxing of all that they wanted for their child, a job, a home, and money to fly them from India to Canada. So like life came full circle and that's how I existed. And I was really starting to struggle with the fact that I had completely erased my trans identity to the point where there wasn't, I did a lot of work in the background. I worked, you know, applying my skills and surveys and things like that, but never did I ever get on the news channel like I get today and talk about it. You, when you, when you said this though, is that you were living as a trans woman, as, as who you are, no one knew any different. Meaning like, right, like they just knew you for being the woman you were. Exactly. Wore. So because some folks have trans folks have passing privilege, and this happens a lot more with trans men, that you don't, you are able to exist as a cis person or cis passing mm. where folks are yes. not going to question you as a trans person. So by default, you're not put already into an unconscious biased bucket, you know, and I don't think I would have gotten to where I did in life, in my professional life or my personal life, if I had been openly trans. This is also, I mean, you're, the the time period that you're talking about too, this was also, I mean, there was so much other stuff happening, you know, in the world for LGBTQI, you know, plus people and rights. I mean, in the States, we were just like on the cusp of, of marriage equality, you know, in 2012. Um, so like when you say that, it's like it it's a reminder that how short of a time for like how not in that much time, like how far we've come knowing obviously that there is so much more work that we have to continue to do and that we have to do. But really, you know, that was only 10 years ago when you were going through that. And, you know, you're right. There were at that time, no one was really talking about trans people. There yeah, wasn't, yeah. Uh, there, it, especially within the, com the within our own community. It was, it just wasn't talked about. It wasn't until, I mean, it really was, you know, a few years ago where it really became more of a community concern versus, you know, just having the trans community, you know, by themselves, you know, fighting the fight that, you know, that we all have had to fight. It's crazy that that, is how you had to, to live. But 
I mean, in some respects, like what you said, if you didn't do that, you may not have been able to achieve what you've been able to, you know, what you were able to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. But to fast forward, like, you know, after that, I was not necessarily happy because now I've become this traditional woman who's going to get completely erased if I didn't do something about my life. And there was this deep, deep gap in my heart that I wasn't being myself or doing what I needed to do for my community or anybody for that matter. I was reading, I was living a very selfish life is how I looked at it. And I also was very, 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 I am still very operating from a scarcity mindset. So for me, it's all about Mm -hmm. how much have I got in the bank account? How many homes do I own? How far can I go up the ladder? So when I got an opportunity to jump back to the US, which had kicked me out, I took it like without even a second Mm. thought. Mm. So I moved and started life all over again. So throughout all my life, um, when I lived in San Francisco in 2003, I had met my trans mother, who's not much older than me, but she's a Pakistani trans woman who came to the US um, much before me. And she tried to make her living, tried to get her by, tried to become a pharmacist. But she became a pharmacy technician. So she took me in because I had no place to go in the U.S. And we lived Mm. in Park Slope in Brooklyn, which is an up and coming, not so safe area. And we lived in a apartment that was converted from an electric store. So my bedroom was literally the size of this room, half of the size of this room with a big boiler on one end. And most people thought I would be dead someday because this boiler wasn't working, but apparently it could emanate carbon monoxide. And, you know, the, the literally the room was like this. And I lived in that room for a year. Wow. And again, grew myself up, went to work on for a whole bunch of companies in e-commerce. I moved around from Seattle to, and then my brother had been settled in Houston for a long time. So then I moved to Houston, bought this big home, my second home. Uh, my brother wasn't accepting of me even at that point. So he had ultimatums for my parents that if I went, if they came over to my home, that they could stay there or if they, you know, so we were only a mile or two apart from each other's homes. And so, yeah, um, it started giving me a different level of lens where I still was not out at this point, remember, I'm still very much in stealth. And I think it was starting to connect with trans folks in Houston, especially black trans women, Mm. that started making me realize that I actually was in a very, very privileged place for being a trans woman of color. And it would be very wrong of me to not do anything. And then 2016, Pulse happened. Mm. And that, anytime I talk about it, I get really emotional because that is what changed my entire existence because yes before that I had brain tumor in 2014 I had to shave my hair you know there was a lot of those things that happened in between I had a lot of illness non-trans related I went through five surgeries by then but pulse was literally what made me recognize that if I didn't do anything I was doing nothing and I was actually adding to the violence and the hatred towards LGBT folks in this world so I think that's when I started becoming a lot more open, obviously met with a lot of resistance from my brother, most especially, and my mom who was like, and you'll never find anybody. And I was like, well, you know, and then as fate had it, I 
got a job offer in the Bay Area. And I was like, this is what kicked me out, right? I'm coming back right back. So I came back in 2016. And since then, it's been a whole different story where I've been very open. You can exist as a trans person with a great level of tolerance, which is still, you know, we're not asking for tolerance. We're asking for intentional inclusion. But when you are actually trans in a workplace, it's a whole different dynamic. It's a whole different dynamic if you're LGBT, but if you're trans, if you're not white, if you're not cis, if you're not gay, those three permutation outside of that, you are destroying your career if they find out you're trans. And I'm not the only testament to that. I have seen time and again get repeated and repeated that it's really hard to hear that that's what the reality is, right? But I mean, it is what it, it's the truth, and I think it's something that we just have to, you know, recognize and um, understand that that's what that is. What do we need to do, or or what? How does how do things need to shift or change in order for that not to be the reality of the situation? I think it's two things. One is allyship, and I'm not talking about mm-hmm. some you know, his theoretical way of how cis allies and people in the non-LGBT community, I'm talking within the community. Yeah. The two most prominent, dominant, prominent identities of LGBTQ that you see in the private sector, at least in the three industries that I've prevailed in, is white cis gay men. And in the last five years, white trans women. Because why any trans man is able to assimilate and you don't know that they're trans until much later. Most trans men don't reveal in a workplace setting, which is very interesting. That's a whole other dynamic. So we need to have allyship within the community. And there needs to be less co-opting. I can't begin to tell you how many uh, spats I've gotten into with white cis men who have literally done everything to make sure that I wasn't sitting at the same level as them and I was sitting at the same table as them. Because I think there's a whole different level of insecurity. And I'm not talking about every single cis white gay man and I'm not categorizing, but I'm talking about especially sure. those that believe that have had a very difficult journey from a small southern state or such. And they believe that their journey is as difficult as mine. And I'm not here doing identity politics, but I have gotten into that. The second that needs to happen is we need to talk, stop, the companies need to be held their feet to the fire of not just hiring and throwing LGBT folks into a company and be talked about them first and foremost as uh, a prefix, as they're a trans, they're a gay or something, but actually be able to equip them to be part of that culture, part of a capability building, and their competency is the only damn thing that is put forward before you allow your unconscious bias as a leader, as a company, to see them for their identity and allow that to overshadow their competency. Those are the two things that need to happen, and we are really not anywhere close to beginning that. Yeah. You you know, as you were saying, like both of those things, you know, to that first point, you know, where it's like, you know, you have two different, you know, two different people coming from two different experiences. There should never be this one upping, right? Like this, like, well, my experience was harder than yours or your, you know, it's like, if we're going to create understanding and we're going to create this, this level, it's like, 
it's almost like instead of combating or, you know, trying to trying to like understand each other, you know, experience, it's like you don't have to understand it. You just have to hear it and you just have to know and understand that your experience, like, you know, even just between the two of us, my experience is different from yours. I went through, you know, trauma and struggles. So did you. And maybe instead of, you know, saying mine is worse than yours or yours was worse than mine, it's not about that. It's hearing one another and being able to go forward as two people, as friends, allies, as a community to be able to help move past some of that. Sometimes we have like this contempt as humans with other people's experiences. Mm. And, And until... And I think, I guess what I would first say is, is judgment. Like, so, so judgment, it, I was reading something recently about like highly successful people and it was like, or, or maybe it was something, like, something else, but it really doesn't matter. The point was, is it is like always think the best of people, hmm. like, like meaning like just assume the best, not the worst. Right. And, and where I'm going with that is like, so that, okay, so that's a place where I can start. And the other thing is, is like, unless someone's given me a reason not to believe hmm. their story, then I should, I, I, I want to assume that they're telling me the truth. So the more that I, I get to have conversations with, with people like yourself and I hear these experiences, I'm like, oh, wow, like this is very, this is like text, not textbook, because I, I don't want to like say that that's that, that simple. But I'm like, oh, like, yeah, like I'm learning from, I talked to somebody else last fall and, and like, yes, this is what they're, and obviously your experience is not exactly the same, but it's like, oh, okay. And then and, and the, there's these bridges and these stepstones of how you got to where you're at. It just it resonates more and more and more, and the truth seems to propel itself more through these stories. I'm glad that you're in a position that you're able to be who you are today and have these conversations, and obviously to be able to see like there's been stepping stones to get to where you are. That it's safe for you to be able to and what is safe, quote unquote. Like I, I, I um, I'm sure we could talk about like there's places where you go where maybe you don't feel quite safe. What I've, I've heard is it's this overarching arc of service and giving, though, in your story at the same time. Wait, was it around 2018, you started um, doing some service on a larger scale, and I would really like to be able to talk about about that work and, and how it began though, because because you've been really successful in a short period of time with, with that. And so for someone from the outside, it might be like, oh, wow, wow, wow. But let's start at the beginning of that for a moment, if that's okay with, uh, with Parivar. Absolutely. So the precursor to Parivar is all the work I've been doing even when I was in stealth. The trans committee that pushed for trans march to be part of Toronto Pride and 2009, we made it happen. I was part of a few South Asian organizations that worked on, again, AIDS prevention, worked on bringing together families um, when it comes to existence. And all this happened behind closed doors and my existence happened there. When I lived in New York, Seattle, in Houston, I used to run support groups. Again, none of this was advertised anywhere or anything. I would just seize the opportunity and do it without outing myself and sometimes claiming to be a trans ally and getting called out by trans people saying, this is a trans only space. And then having to like reveal myself. When I moved back to the Bay Area, there were two catalyst things that happened. One was the fact that I 
was shocked to see that nothing much had changed in the Bay Area that considers itself to be very inclusive from when I had mm. been kicked out of here. So we're talking 11 years, 12 years later, not much had happened. Hormone access was still very difficult. You know, trans people were still unable to get to the decent living. And the second one was a trans sister of mine who had, I had met for the very first time in 2007. So 2007 was the mm -hmm. first time I went, flew from Canada to Houston as myself, presented myself as me to my brother and my sister-in-law. What followed was my brother locking me up for three days, beating me and all that happened. This is a big ass woman who's making her own money and all that shit. Because my sister-in-law was a whole different case and it took a while for my brother. But I'd met this amazing person who was a, a restaurant owner back then. And we had followed, and she's South, South Asian, and we had followed her. We have been staying in touch through all my life, and she was in the Bay Area. So we connected back, and she was getting discriminated left, right, center by South Asian cis gay people who hired her mm. to work in their restaurant but had not paid her for three months. And so I did not have an option mm. but to jump in and start protecting. She's not educated. So she didn't know anything besides just cooking. And they just kept right. pushing her aside to the point where she lost her home. And here I was living in this big ass 4,000 sky rise, sky rise, high rise city view apartment. And I was like, you got to come stay with me. And then I, I didn't have a choice. I had to jump right into it. And that's when the whole yeah. Bay Area was like, oh, she's back. Oh, she's here. And I was like, well, I am here, but I'm not, I didn't want to be here. I was going to live my own life and do what I could do. So when I moved back, I can begin to tell you how many people were coming over to my home. I had parties and all the South Asians, the cis gay men, the lesbian couples, like people who I knew from back then started showing up. But when this particular incident happened, I told the community one thing. You're all mostly educated and in the tech world. All you could do is stand up for one other person in your community. It mm. could be anybody. And you haven't done that. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the result of that. You're allowing this cis gay couple to discriminate against somebody in our own community. So I had to sue them. I had to quickly learn the laws. I had to do all of that. I got ostracized by the entire South Asian cis gay community. People were like, she's not invited to any of our events. People shut their door on my face saying, you're not invited to my kid's birthday party anymore. And my sister, who I consider my sister, got some of her money. She was very vexed. She moved to Eugene and she died. Mm -hmm. So that literally left me thinking, I cannot allow another person to die. And the problem lies in the fact that we have this intersectionality that's so lost and allowed to attest to whiteness because most South Asian cis gay men want to attach themselves to white men before they even think of dating a black person or a person of color. Like I live in East Oakland mm -hmm. and I could tell you on my fingers how many South Asian folks have come into my neighborhood or come to my home because I live in a predominantly black neighborhood. And I, mm -hmm. so that's where I think the, 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 the fire started growing in me. And I was like, this, mm -hmm. this, all this work is great, Anjali. You can give yourself props and all this shit, but you're not doing enough, bitch. And you've done all mm -hmm. of this in your life and you've 
gone away from the community. You've lived in stealth. You've traveled the world. You've slept in the best beds and first classes. But you got to step this up, fucking bitch. So I was really mm. hard on myself. You know, I lost my job in a year because now I had become this activist even at work because I would not put up with any bullshit. So Parivar mm. came about when there was their San Francisco AIDS Foundation said, hey, can you do a three-night series to just talk about South Asian, you know, gay li- lives? And one of the artists had brought me in because they had seen me. Re- I did a lot. Of, I do a lot of spoken word, poetry slams, and he brought me in. And my first thing was, well, it's not just gay lives. There's women, there's mm-hmm. lesbians, there's trans people. You got to recognize all of that. So there was that first divide right there that happened. And this was after I was ostracized by the South Asian community. So this happened in very early year, months of when moving back here to 2016. Now we are talking 2018. And we I said, we'll do this event. What I didn't realize was that there was such a need for such a platform where they could see somebody besides a male identifying person. Mm. And when that happened, by the time we got to our second night, so this was across two months, April, May and April, April and May. And I was traveling a hell of a lot for my work during this time between New Jersey and here. The amount of emails, phone calls, people starting to talk about this had exploded. And the event's mm. name was what I came up with as Parivar, which means family. And that's when I realized this cannot stop here. Hmm. This has to become much more than that. So again, I put together a business plan like I do in my work for a nonprofit and really started building collaborations. So in the first year, Hmm. the two other people who brought me in and we co-founded Paribar, they stepped away. One was an artist and he said, I don't have a bandwidth. I don't have this kind of skill set. The other one who actually brought me in said, you are the expert here. I don't want to co-opt into your experience. So it was nice of them. But now I was left with doing all the work by myself because in three months, Mm -hmm. we had 400 members sign up. Wow. And granted, 60% of them were South Asian cis gay men, but they were a lot more open-minded, if I may say compared to the ones that I'd experienced uh, back then and the early first year. So then Parivar started expanding and we started having these unplanned talking sessions. And Mm. then I was like, oh, wow, this sounds like the Seattle counseling services where I would go every Wednesday. So we started the support group that was overwhelmingly needed. And so we started doing it a few times a month. Then we moved to the Central States Foundation that gave us place. Then we start getting invited to all these events because now there's a novelty of a South Asian queer trans identity that's usually lost because we don't fit or try not to fit in the Asian bucket, the API bucket, and we are definitely not in the black and we are definitely not in the white. So there's this level of novelty that I really cashed on. So the first mm. year between 2018, August to 2019, we were part of over 35 events from wow. fundraisers to 
collaborations to producing events to everything. And my forte is events. Remember Boise State? So, you know, here mm -hmm. we did, I did everything I could. I would just show up and I would start, start doing posters. I would do a pop-up store. And during this time, I'd also started working with organizations in India. And one of the organizations mm -hmm. with Aravani Art Project, which, you know, was somebody I met when I came to the U.S. that very first year, and I was at Trans March, and I see these trans women from India. And remember, I've not gone back to India in the, all these years. And I'm just baffled. Who are these people? And they start speaking mm -hmm. my language. And I was literally, like I was on my motorcycle because I'd done the rally in my motorcycle. And I literally broke down. I literally started crying on the street because these were trans women who are from the streets. They're not trans women privileged in India. They're women who were be, who've been doing sex work and having to do begging. And now they had an opportunity to come to the U.S. because they decided to become artists. And, you know, mm. the organization brought them here. So I quickly attached myself to them and wanted to do everything I can. So there was this Parivar and then there was this Aravani. So if you go to our website, you see that. And since then, we've been working together with them. I brought them back twice, once to South by Southwest. And we work very closely. So then started understanding that there is this revenue mechanism, think, given that I'm money-minded, that we can start doing. So we started doing a lot of Aravani products and any artist, there was this other artist who did a lot of leather, South Asian men art, um, paintings, and we started selling them at all these events we were at. So we could mm. fund our own events. And in the first year, we like kind of made $12,000. It wasn't the money, but wow. it was about how far our reach went. You know, yeah. we were part of Encapia, which is the National Queer Alliance of Asian Pacific Islander Association and all that. So that's where we kind of went about 2019. We continued our journey. We formed our board. We got fiscally sponsored. And there was, you know, this is an interesting part of our time where we were really getting featured a lot. We were in local newspapers. We were you know, invited to other spaces like the AIDS, AIDS, World AIDS Conference and all that. And there was some sort of a level of coup that happened in our organization where I was very much open to anybody joining. Um, and my board at that time was made up of 16 folks and there were only three mm -hmm. trans GNCI folks for an organization that's all about centering trans GNCI folks. And I'm all mm -hmm. about that. I want each one of us to learn from each other as long as we are going on the same objective. But then I ran into the same issues of my identity is better than yours. My journey is more difficult than mm -hmm. yours. So we got into this whole thing. And remember, trans GNCI folks have very limited bandwidth. That's why you don't see us in uh, both positions and in leadership positions, because we're thrilled. We, even if we have all the, you know, the tangible assets to live, the housing and all that, we still have to work past through our traumas that have been inflicted on us for mm -hmm. years. So the work started falling on me in a great way. And it still is. Because there is very limited folks, and I think I shared the statistics. I'm part of the 0.0000001352% of trans folks in the entire world that have actually been able to hang on to a job for more than 10 years and actually have been able to have a roof over my head for over five years and be in the private sector for more than three years. Wow. So I... Re 
I'm okay doing it, but there's not a lot of trans folks who are sitting on my boat today who can actually even have the bandwidth to show up for board meeting. I've I've moved my board meeting twice this month. I have no qualms about doing it, but the amount of work yeah. I am doing is just at a different level. And then COVID happened. Mm-hmm. Everything came to a standstill, and everybody was doing their own thing. And this was the time when my parents had just moved in with me from Houston. Uh, my mom had already been living here on and off. I I bought my home in 2018 and they moved here from Houston where they were living in my other home. And then they went to India that 20, 2019, they went to India sometime around in the late uh, part of it. And then COVID happened and I was worried about them, but I was also home by myself. And then started realizing that people were suffering. And because now we started working with more organizations in India, not just Aravani, started working with Motri Sanjog, which is one of the only shelters that accepted trans folks, because it was started by a trans woman who lived in a railway Mm. station for nine years. And so Mm. think of this, trans people have always been the beacons of building facility and providing livelihood and allowing for people to have a place to survive, a platform to exist on. So here's the, so I brought her here. We did a huge event at Strat, which is part of San Francisco Gate Foundation. We got her a grant through another partner organization of ours. And today, just last week, she opened her first fully built, not a hut, but concrete built shelter back in India. So it's like a big milestone for us. And the community has really shown up for yeah. So I'm working also with two organizations in my hometown of Hyderabad with folks who were who I connected on the internet. So I never met these folks, but I'd been working with them since 2015, I would say, actually, even before I moved here. So now we are seeing all the ramifications of COVID and India went into a total lockdown. I'm starting to hear all the struggles here. And I lived in, I've been working closely with, so since 2016 to 2019, I'd also been quite out there on boards, in, in communities outside of the South Asian. And I would really say that my network is a lot more network. My my true chosen families outside of the South Asian queer trans fam- community, which is very fascinating, right? Mm-hmm. My mentors yeah. and my closest friends are in the Black trans community, you know, mm-hmm. and so I have an understanding of all of those struggles as well. And so mm. I realized that whatever we were doing, fancy virtual things on online with Parivar would not work anymore. And that's when I kind of reached out to the mayor's office in San Francisco and Oakland at the same time. And I said, we got to do something. And where there were discussions. And I think in literally two days, the SFLGBT uh, Bay Area COVID Relief Coalition was formed. And it, mm. was, the, it was a first there is 42 LGBT organizations in the Bay Area. Nothing of this sort has ever happened before. There's been associations of performers coming together, queer trans performance. There's been associations of restaurant LGBTQ folks coming together. But entire organizations and foundations coming together, it had never happened. And everybody was, mm-hmm. who is Parivar? And who's this Anjali Remy? Like everybody was like, you know, and I wasn't doing any of this for fame. But the impact it was able to have 
is something that I'm really, really grateful for. You know, we had three organizations turn out, which is a volunteer-driven uh, organization in Oakland. They provide volunteers to all events. The Office of Transgender Initiatives with this mayor's office in the city of San Francisco. Ella Para Trans Latinas, which is the only trans-led organization catering to Latinx folks, queer, mm. queer or trans, and they've been around for a long time. Tazis Coalition, which is about, I'm forgetting the expansion, which is a black trans-led and centering organization, and and the LGBT Asylum Project, which is our fiscal sponsor for Paribar. We were the core team and we recruited 21 other organizations to join the coalition. And we were like, wow. we'll do anything, we'll do anything. Like, So I had a full-time job. I just started this new job. And so I have this desk right here and then I have a full desk over there. So this became like my second <laughs> job. I worked those weeks and months. I worked literally 24 hours. Weekends, I didn't even see like wow. step out. And I was by myself. So who yeah. cares, right? Like I can't even go to the grocery store. So I'm just eating off freezer food. And we did everything. So the first thing we did was started asking for money. And people were like, well, you need to submit a grant. And we're still figuring out the extent of this. The city doesn't have money. The projections look like we're going to be negative 87 million. All that's great, but everybody's got money. So mm-hmm. I started writing grants with uh, grants with uh, applications with a pro bono grant writer. And I don't mm-hmm. know, this was skills that I never learned. But like since starting <laughs> Parivar, I've had to learn how to build posters, make websites, you know, write grants. And we raised $140,000. Wow. Wow. And with foundations, with GoFundMes and with the city support. And we started doing this financial micro grants. And we had folks sign up and tell us how much they wanted. In total, they wanted $700,000. Obviously, we didn't have that. We got nowhere close to that. So we had to cap the amount and start giving out folks. So we gave out about 500 folks in two different rounds. Outside of that, we did a general relief uh, channel where folks could sign up to have food delivered to them, especially older folks, have translations because there was a lot of um, you know, immigrant, non-English speaking, you know, queer trans folks. And this coalition was not just for trans folks, it was for all the LGBT folks. Primarily mm-hmm. centered and some of the grants restricted who we could support. So it had to be San Francisco Bay Area. But we helped everybody in the city of Ca- city San Francisco, the neighboring cities, 17 neighboring cities, and all of the state of California, folks from LA. And we helped folks wow. in the Rio Grande Valley in Texas, And then we are now talking about all the folks in India for whom we cannot Mm. use these funds in great majority. So we started raising funds for them, for a trans community. So they were able to um, actually get access to food because literally they were starving. This shelter had four kilos of rice to feed 90 people. And... They, they're isolated. They don't have, they're not like in a big city, this shelter, because big cities would never allow a shelter like that. And then there was a shelter in Hyderabad. And then there's Aravani where artists, nobody wants you to come paint murals during a lockdown, right? So we started supporting them. So that was one channel that we started giving them money on a monthly basis. We started paying them so they could cover all their expenses. So I'm like managing their entire ledgers because they don't have all that capability, right? Like they don't know how much their rent is, how much the food is going to cost. So here I have like multiple Excel tabs and I'm the one dispensing out. Parivar is dispensing out money to every single individual. 
because we don't want W9s. We don't want this shit on record or anything. Like, you know, we want people to be helped ASAP. And then the other channel we had was we reached out to organizations and companies and we said, hey, this is an emergency essential appliance list. So you can buy people beds, cots, you know, microwaves, whatever you want, and you can ship it directly to them. Here's their address. And that was our other channel that kind of also got, uh, you know, engaged a lot. And then finally, our uh, our one other channel was to prevent domestic violence. And I don't want to say we scratched the surface because I didn't realize until much later that domestic violence is a huge issue that gets magnified or got magnified when you are actually with your perpetrator in the home. And I didn't realize how big of a problem it was in the LGBT community. And even more perplexing was the statistics show that cis gay couples are the ones that are most in this discussion. And that Mm -hmm. really baffled me. And we didn't do enough. We couldn't get enough, but we partnered with organizations. But those organizations were not equipped to handle LGBT folks or those kind of Mm -hmm. situations. So we started doing a lot of counseling and supporting folks. Um, We did have a lot of mental support resources, Trans Lifeline and all those places supported us and, you know, helped us send folks over to talk to them. And we had a website that was built uh, with all these resources. But that's one piece that I regret because I know we have lost people because of that. We did lose mm. people. The most folks we lost of COVID was in the trans-Latinx community. In the South Asian mm. community, we have lost folks. Um, we've lost hundreds in India. Um, we've lost about 10 people in that shelter that I was talking about. So we've lost folks. But what I can say is that we are able to continue that work even today. And we've been able to build that strength, that scale to to further things in a different direction from relief to vaccine access. So now mm. in the last two months, we've been focused on, we're still giving out micro grants, but in a very judicious way, because we are coming down to the end of our funds and everybody thinks COVID's over. So nobody wants to give us grants and people are needing to rebuild. Uh, so the beauty that came about is two things. One is that we got vaccine access and uh, basically partnered again with San Francisco AIDS Foundation, all the CMOs that the state uh, approved. And we started prioritizing access for vaccine for LGBT folks of color and trans GNCF folks of color. And here's the irony. There's a particular profile of people who have access to vaccines. Those are called the people with the four C's. Car, computer capability, and I forget the four C's. So here we are opening up a drive that's specific to marginalized people, and 70 to 80% are white, het, very capable people showing up. And we, there's no way we can. Is it is a fourth C? Is a fourth C ca- Caucasian? Is that the fourth yes, C? Yes, I think that is what it is. I think if I go to my notes, I'll probably see that. Yes, yeah, it's uh, Caucasian. You're right. Good, good one there. Um, so we had to stop it because Parivar is yeah. now getting bashed. I mean, our our WhatsApp groups and all those were like literally getting like getting into these fights, literal um, fights, like, why did you do this drive if you're going to have only cis, you know, folks showing up there? Well, we did, we asked right. for people to show up and we realized that we were not right. assessing the situation that there's actually these folks who can't even get to those sites. 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yes. Right. Which is that can that, that spurs into so many different conversations about a lot of different things in, in, in the world we live in that people don't understand. I sit here and I just I love your whole story. And what I have watched in your story and just now is you've just told like just you probably aren't aware of like how much you've done. But for somebody from the outside who's listening to what you're doing, it's just like ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. Like you're unstoppable. Like and I don't want to say unstoppable because I know there are roadblocks that you deal with on a daily, at least in my experience. I know people might say, oh, you're unstoppable. There are things, but you figure it out. And really what I'm trying to say is, is that your life, you are just a conduit. Mm. Like it's, you're obviously, you're not just doing it all yours. You're a conduit helping these things facilitate, right? And that is such an amazing thing. And, and, and what I'm looking forward to is knowing you now is, is being to see like how you get to help other people become conduits as well too. Mm. In, in the world and that's the, the multiplier effect that's that's like the abundance right we talked about like the the lack earlier but now this is this abundance and when you've gotten to where you at it's just like it's just it's so beautiful you know and we, we're going to feature your website uh the links to your website and the work you're doing on, on our site for your profile um we want to stop and just for a second and just say congratulations trans uh day of visibility is is this week and you were just honored yesterday for for, for two awards and you you're, you're very humble but if you wouldn't mind sharing with the audience uh, just the recognition that you were presented yesterday well i thank you for that uh i don't really like to talk about myself but the transgender day of visibility community awards have ever uh, are given out to those in community and organizations that have been doing the work and periwar was awarded the Forerunner Award, which is given to an organization that's emerging but has made fundamental difference in the lives of um, San Francisco, California, and worldwide uh, trans GNCI folks. And I was nominated for a Champion of Change Award, along with really amazing trans leaders that I look up to. And this is given to uh, or a, a community leader who's brought fundamental change that's not just uh, one time, but scalable and sustainable. And I was awarded that as well. Um, and I'm really honored and humbled that, you know, I was, uh, I was recognized for it. You know, that uh, towards the beginning of our conversation, we were talking about you as a young person in India. And, um, you know, one of the things that we said, or you said that was you, uh, we're doing all of these things, you know, you were achieving all of these accomplishments and winning awards and all of these things, but you were not able to fully ex to fully be yourself. And today we look at you and we look at how you are still accomplishing like amazing things and winning awards and everything else, but you've actualized and, and embraced who you fully are. And I think it's just a, a beautiful thing to witness and a beautiful example of what it does when you can fully accept yourself for who you are and how that could relate to anyone's life and anyone's experience when you really can just be comfortable in your skin and do the work that you're supposed to be doing while we're on this planet. Because it is a short time that we have here. And to fully being able to actualize that is great. I also just want to say, I did say earlier, entrepreneur in the making when you were, you know, 16 selling food on the on the street. And it's and what you just said with what the work you're doing now, how you have to handle the website and do the spreadsheets and all of that stuff. Your life has been 
you know, as an outsider looking in, your life has been a journey to get you ready f- to do this incredible work that you're doing. And any way that the listeners can support, can we just give them that resource? Is, is there any way that the listeners, if they want to help support the work that you're doing, how do they do that? Absolutely. Um, the listeners, I would say, first and foremost, I would urge them to really understand trans lives and do the work on that. Uh, but in specific to Parivar, uh, check out our website, parivarbayarea.org. And you can always reach out to us in how you can collaborate with us. Uh, we are always looking mm-hmm. to do events and awareness and advocacy campaigns. And we are always short of resources and comp- expertise, you know, and technical support. So I would really ask you to check us, our website out. And, you know, you touched on something earlier around being that conduit and being that scalable piece. So I never want Parivar or any of my work to be, oh, that's Anjali Rimi. I, I don't want it to be synonymous. I want it to be where I'm just one particle amongst this big movement. So one of the things that has happened talking in the spirit of entrepreneurship is through COVID, we've had to raise money. And I think I talked about how we had to do different things for the communities in India. We had, I had brought in their products from their, the, the paintings and the handicrafts they make. And now what made me realize is that with all the expertise and all the learnings I've had, we can now make this sustainable. So we are about to launch our website, mm. parivarbazaar.com. That is a South Asian store by South Asian trans folks. It has everything mm. from handicrafts to ethnic wear to art paintings to accessories to jewelry. And you might say, oh, everybody sells that. But this is a website that's actually catered by trans folks. All the product is sourced or made by trans folks, um, mostly from India, but we plan to grow global uh, at some point eventually. We're launching in three days and we're really excited about it. And um, we are on track. And it's been a learning again, right? Like uh, building that (laughs) entrepreneurial spirit and being able to actually do it, get the product from elsewhere when we have to like figure out when the next meal is coming. It's been an interesting fact. So I would really recommend, ask folks, check out that website and share and support us by buying our product. Um, And then finally, I would say, you know, as an individual, if you are from the South Asian community and you're in the heteronormative community, I would really ask for you to bring in trans folks intentionally into conversations, places, places of worship, places of work. And we have a lot of folks in our community who are very qualified, very educated, but have not been given the access. So if you're in a position of power and you can Look, take a minute or two to look at a resume of a trans person. Please let us know. We work with everybody from black trans to, you know, South Asian trans to Latinx trans who are all looking to rebuild as we come out of this pandemic. So uh, that's another great way to support as well. Wonderful. Well, Anjali, um, we're going to have all this uh, on our website. We'll push it out on social as well, too. Links to your to all the, the, the wonderful work you're doing. Anthony and I uh, really just want to thank you so much for what you do and also some taking some time to spend uh, with us today. So thank you so much. And we look forward to uh, just following more of your journey. So thanks again. Absolutely. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. I, I, it was a long conversation. I appreciate you humoring me. And I really want to, you know, 
commend you for all the work you do and for ensuring that all the voices are heard within our communities, our stories are told. So, you know, there could be another Anjali Remy somewhere, you know, there could be a Jeff or an Anthony somewhere that mm-hmm. needs that little push, that needs some uh, little uh, inspiration to be able to do more and to be themselves fully, first and foremost. That's the best service you can do to community. And then to be able to be in community and do a lot more for the community. So thank you for doing all this work. Our, our, our pleasure. We couldn't put it any better than what you just said. So awesome. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you. Anjali's inspiring story reminds us what we're all capable of. Her work is incredibly important. And to learn more on how you can support the mission, go to our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com and visit her profile page. There, you can get connected and show your support. Thanks for listening to this episode of Talk Out Loud. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate us, and share with a friend. You can also follow us on social media at Talk Out Loud Live. If you or someone you know has an inspirational story and a member of the LGBTQIA community, we'd love to hear from you. Reach out to us on our website at www.talkoutloudlive.com. On our website, you can also catch up on past episodes, learn more about our past guests, and browse their profiles. You can also get your official Talk Out Loud gear in our online store and browse our online bookstore curated with our guests' recommended books. Thanks again for listening, and remember, be true, be you, and to talk out loud.